Welcome to the Bylines Network podcast, an audio accompaniment to our growing family of regional Bylines publications. After Kim Ledbetter's victory in the Battle of Ben by-election, we look at what the result means for the Labour Party and for the Keir Starmer leadership more generally. We're also going to be talking to Kim Sanderson, who wrote this week's article of the week for Northeast Bylines, all about the EU settlement deadline, which was on June 30th, and the implications. I'm Katrina Best in East Sussex. And I'm Alex Toll, up in York. So, Alex, I understand that you've actually been spending quite a lot of time recently in Batley and Spen, not helping George Galloway. <laughs> not um, quite, no. <laughs> so I'd be interested to know your observations, um, both in terms of the result, obviously, which is, I'm sure, a relief, but also the um, just the run-up to it. Yeah, so I think two real narratives out of this election. So obviously it was an incredibly narrow victory, 323 votes, which sort of feels kind of weird given the narrative around it. It really feels as though in the lead up to this by-election, it was all about how Labour was terrible. Labour was, you know, going to be out of power for another decade. But then as soon as we had 323 votes in our favour, it was suddenly the case that Labour's back, Labour's coming home, I think was the line that I heard Um and that sort of whole switch of narrative. And it's this really weird thing where we can't say, like, was possible with Hartlepool, um, Labour won because of X, because the margin of victory is so narrow that it could be due to the delay in unlocking, could be due to Matt Hancock, could be due, due to that we had a really good local candidate. Um, I actually knocked on quite a lot of, lot of doors of Lib Dem voters, or Tory voters, who actually were going to support Kim because they knew her, she'd taught them Zumba, and they actually really liked her. It could be because of tactical voting and the fact that the Green candidate had to pull out. It could be because of a really bad Conservative campaign, or it could be because we got a really good new uh, national campaign coordinator in Shabana Mahmood. Um, so that's one of the narratives, that this was a really close election, that George Galloway did pull off quite a sort of difficult time for Labour. But also the other narrative is the fact that, well, yeah, George Galloway pulled off quite a difficult time for Labour, yet Labour won nonetheless and when you look at the numbers um there was a surveillation poll of the constituency a couple of weeks before the election and they were saying that it was mostly going to be labor voters who were going to be voting for galloway and so when you bear that in mind it actually shows that a whole new voting coalition is built up in badly and spend so to quickly talk about the constituency so the constituency is made up of not just badly but the Spen Valley, Spen's not actually a place. Um, it's a kind of collection of quite affluent villages, places like Plakeaton, Heckenwijk, these sorts of like small villages with generally speaking quite affluent well-off voters. And it seems to be the case that over the last two weeks of the campaign, Labour really built this quite different coalition to normal, um, not just spanning a lot of the younger voters, but also these kind of more elderly voters in these villages, which aren't normally that sorts of, sorts of areas. So. To kind of try to answer your question at the start, it's been a really weird campaign and it's shown the Labour Party actually transitioning during the campaign from where it was around the local elections to something quite different, I think. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. I didn't know that about Spen. I, d I didn't know what it was. It's quite interesting to hear that. I mean, I noticed with the figures too, like there were a lot of cries of, you know, well, don't claim victory because it was so close. So, you know, and also I know that Johnson was very quick to claim that they'd nearly won sort of thing. Yeah. But actually, the I understand the Conservative vote share went down. So obviously something happened. Did they stay home or do you think some of them voted for Galloway too? Because 
you know, he claims to be left wing, but he's, I think, got quite a bit of appeal for um, former UKIPers as well, right? It's difficult to tell at this early point, obviously. Mm -hmm. But one other big factor which has been talked about a little bit with Batley and Spen is this power of this very important local independent, Paul Halloran. I think he won over 10,000 votes last time and he did endorse Galloway quite early on. And that definitely played a factor in terms of wedding those two coalitions. Mm -hmm. So Galloway, it seems to be the case, that got lots of his vote from this kind of weird mix of particularly younger voters in the Kashmiri community over issues like Palestine and Kashmir, but also from this older population. Um, there was quite a lot of sort of sort of homophobic campaigning material around um, Kim Ledbetter's sexuality and also about the recent controversy about um, teaching in schools. And there's a, there was a very weird campaign on that part. Um, as to why the Tories lost at this election, it's difficult to tell. I mean, their candidate, Ryan Stevenson, hadn't, I don't think been selected to win the seat. He was a councillor in the kind of the posh bit of Leeds. He wasn't from the area and there was nothing to really say that he would be a good MP. And the other factor was that the campaign wasn't very good itself. There was some reporting on the day of the election that the get out the vote operation with Conservatives was quite bad. There was lots of apathy in communities. There wasn't that much concern about winning the election because of A, how the campaign had been conducted or not conducted on the Conservative side. And also because of this big scandal the week before with Matt Hancock. Yes, I've heard of people speculating that that was a factor. So it's it's been interesting to watch the sort of the chatter afterwards because it seems to be a mixture of some people saying, well, probably in the mainstream media, more people saying, well, Keir Starmer can breathe a sigh of relief. He's, you know, if they hadn't won it, that would have been it for him, blah, blah, blah. But now he can build. And it seems to me to be mostly Labour people, but on the left of the party that that are still going after him and saying, you know, it's not good enough sort of thing. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And whilst I'm not necessarily, you know, going to go out for a drink with Aaron Bastani, I don't think that these criticisms are necessarily wrong. It was quite a tight by election. And when you're in opposition, you do want to be making advances rather than retreats. However, I think the difficult thing is that Labour right now is in a point of transition. I mean, Keir Starmer's replaced most of his top team in leader of the opposition's office. And it seems to be the case, at least from listening to, listening to Labour MPs, they are a little bit happy with how things are going. So whilst there are definitely still concerns, I'm really glad that Labour want this. So that actually there's a chance to see what these changes are going to look like. Yeah. And and also, I think I've heard a lot. I actually heard Diane Abbott um, on the radio the other day and she was being very, mm. I don't know, quite diplomatic and circumspect. But what she was saying very clearly just over and over again was policy, policy, policy. We need to. And I keep seeing that more and more that I think now. So Labour's got over this little hump. Now they have to. Well, a lot of people want to see a stronger opposition, I think, you know, not just at PMQs, but all the time. And also to see um, policy, like what are they standing for, not just what are they standing against? Yeah, and I think it's a, it's quite an interesting conversation about sort of Labour's position because there was a really good column by Paul Wall of, I think, BuzzFeed, isn't it, um, about Starmer, which I think I often don't buy into a lot of criticism, but I think he had a really good point when he said that Starmer can't often see the difference between the court of public opinion versus a court of law, and that... And Labour has produced tons of policies since Starmer came into office, but they only ever say them once. There's a really good example, actually, during the Corbyn years, that every bank holiday, he would always reaffirm 
his commitment to making the sort of National Saints Days of the United Kingdom bank holidays. And that's kind of what you have to be doing. Mm. You, can, you have to be repeating policies over and over again so that they actually get into the public conscience because unfortunately people don't always listen the first time. And you have well, to. They don't listen the 10th time. I mean, people yeah. are still uh, talking to the Lib Dems like, well, you've abandoned the EU, but the Lib Dem actually last September adopted an amended policy because in the Lib Dems, the members make the policies. Mm. Um, they adopted it to, to, to rejoin as soon as possible. <laughs> so it's just, it's actually a policy, but people still seem to believe that uh, it isn't. So it's, it's, it's very strange. And how likely do you think it's going to be that um, he's going to actually embrace the idea of a progressive alliance? Because that's something a lot of people are pushing for. I think it's really interesting, actually. I've, there's kind of a column which I've been wanting to write about this in ages, for ages, but I haven't got around to it or had the right words for it. But I think both Batley and Spen and Cheshman Amersham say very interesting things about the Progressive Alliance. Yeah. Because whilst obviously cooperation between the parties is good, there are two main, I think, dangers of any Progressive Alliance. One is that voters aren't as simplistic as we'd like them to be. It's not the case that if you vote Lib Dem, you're going to prefer a Labour government to a Conservative one. And indeed, vice versa, that if you vote Labour, you're going to be happy to vote for a Lib Dem MP to support you. And that we can't necessarily assume these are sort of fixed blocks of votes either way. And the other is the fact that even without this sort of formal alliance, we have seen quite sort of disciplined tactical voting um, in both. Yes, only in by-elections, right? I mean, it's mm. that, that's the tricky thing. It's it's sort of. Um you're right it's you know i'm not sure how possible it would be but isn't one of the first hurdles to get labor to change the policy of, of deciding to stand in every seat i mean labor even ran somebody against caroline lucas last time which just seemed absolutely appalling <laughs> yeah and it's counterproductive but i think this is the thing is that if anything these last two by-elections will embolden all three main parties not just labor to not do anything formal because if voters... said that had the Greens won, I think we'd be looking at a very, I mean, had the Greens ran, I think we'd be looking at a different result, don't you? Since it's there were only interesting... 323 mm -hmm. votes in it. It's an interesting hypothetical, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and we'll never know, which is the annoying thing, because I think... We won't. You're probably we, right. I mean, yeah. I, I don't find it annoying, I'm just relieved. But yeah. it's, it's, I mean, Cheshire Manhattan was quite a different thing. I mean, that was an absolute victory for the Lib Dems. You, ca you can't see mm. it any other way. This was a very narrow win and i also think it speaks a lot to how we really need to start ditching the whole idea of like left and right wing because yeah. i think going back to badly and spend this is where it gets really interesting because whilst lots of the voters on the doorstep have quite left-wing opinions on things like foreign policy on things like um like economic redistribution homophobia did play a huge role in the campaign and it's really difficult to ascribe someone as left or right wing when they've got such different views and that voters are complicated and it parties need to start recognizing that and that you can't just sort of say one thing to win them over necessarily brilliant about the win and and mm. i think she's going to be a fantastic mp and of course it's especially well i don't know what the word is really it's it was probably very bittersweet the fact that she's joe cox's sister and everything but i think she had to endure quite a lot of abuse actually which is extraordinary um given the situation but um good for her and i think she'll make an amazing mp actually yes definitely and she is really and she's kind of... really local isn't she she's really from there and 
yeah no she really and she's lived in i think every single village in that constituency um wow. again she's taught zumba to half of the constituency that's fantastic mm. and i'm at so many people people on the doorstep who said i really don't like Keir Starmer. i really don't like labor but you know what i know kim she, I, my kids went to school with her kids um and we're gonna vote for her that's interesting yeah and actually yeah. Lot, almost every activist that i spoke to on on the in the campaign said if we win it'll be because of him not despite her So this week's article of the week is all about the EU settled status deadline and it's an article written by Kim Sanderson for Northeast Bylines. So we are delighted to be joined by Kim Sanderson today. Kim wrote a piece for Northeast Bylines this week about the deadline to EU settled status and what it means for EU citizens. Kim, thanks for joining us. That's okay. Good so to be here. So we've come to the... well come past the deadline this week of the 30th of June. Can you tell us a little bit about what this means for EU citizens living in the UK and also for UK citizens living in the EU as well? Um, yeah, I've known a few people locally who've lived here, um, some of them a lot longer than I have in Northumberland, but who were originally from EU countries. So they had to then apply for settled status to, in order to, to stay here and keep all their rights. Um, it, it didn't seem, as the time went on, it didn't seem like anything was going to change and it didn't seem like rights were going to be granted automatically. So then it, it just became a question of people accepted that they had to do it and they had to apply. And then some, all of a sudden it seemed to be, there's a deadline and, and it's sort of scrambling to make sure everybody's done it. Um, I, I don't know a bit less about what happened in, in the EU, but some people who have been saying that there are deadlines in some countries and not in others. Um, some people have been granted these rights automatically, but other countries you have to apply. Yes, and in the article, you mentioned this huge backlog of about 400,000 people who are currently waiting for sort of confirmation of what's happening. Can you talk a little, about, a little bit about that and what we know for these people who have... Sort of applied before the deadline but who haven't received any confirmation yet? I think it's going to be difficult even for people who do have the settled status in terms of a lot of people asked for a paper permit or some sort of proof to say that they have this status um, that they've applied for and which will grant them these rights to, to access healthcare and things. Um, but for people who haven't got that stage and haven't had the confirmation, I think it's very difficult, especially now the, the deadline's passed unofficially they um, are expected to have something. Um, it must be very nerve wracking to be in this position of, of having had rights in this country and, and at the moment not being sure if, if you're going to get them. Yes, no, for sure. Can you talk a little bit about what settled status means in terms of rights? Because you do actually, you do actually run through a couple of rights which these citizens had before um, Brexit, which now they might have removed, even if they do get settled status. I think it, um, landlords can ask for your proof that, that you're um, legitimately in the UK. So for, for EU citizens, whereas that wasn't needed in the past, it would now be required. Um, I think also access to healthcare would, would depend on that. Yeah, um, and we're kind of going to see what happens about this moving forwards. Um, and you kind of mentioned also throughout the article the efforts of people on the ground trying to get citizens 
e-citizens to get to the settled status scheme before it happens. Do you get a sense from who you've talked to that this has been a well-managed process? Um, I, I'm, I'm slightly confused by some of the, the messages that I've heard on the radio this, uh, this week from the government who are saying that they feel they've communicated well about the process because that's not what I've heard. And, and there've been a lot of people who are worried uh, about some citizens who may have been here for a long time who, who won't have applied because they're not, they don't know about it. Um, and also parents who may have applied for themselves, but not for their children. So to me, that doesn't sound like something that's been communicated clearly. Um, certainly in my local area, there was a meeting early on with our MP and a group of EU citizens got together sort of among themselves. And a few of us who weren't from the EU 27 came along to put extra pressure because we're constituents who could, who could vote for the MP. Um, and we were assured that everything would be fine. This was sort of fairly soon after Brexit. And as time has gone on, we haven't had a lot of proactive contact from our MP. Uh, and I, I haven't heard of other people who've had a lot of help from, from the central government, certainly, although some voluntary organizations have helped out. So I, I think it's been tricky. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, definitely. And that's sort of what I've heard about as well. I'm talking to my contacts saying that it's been a very odd process and there hasn't really been enough communication at all. And that also brings us on to, I guess, the moving forward question that quite often gets asked here about how we can actually restore some of these rights. You mentioned in the article mm. that the UK is working on a bilateral basis with various countries to try to restore some rights, but it seems like quite a tortuous process, doesn't it? But, well, it's also difficult having uh, starting from a basis of not having them and also now countries being able to set their own limits and um, restrictions if they want to. It, it's difficult to see um, what's going to happen. Um, and it's, it's very difficult for, for any one person to get an overview, I suppose. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, and one thing which you also bring up in the article is how this has affected cross-border services. And so obviously this has been something which has been long running now from the start of the year, but mm -hmm. we did have these sort of well-publicised lorry queues, but also you point to particularly that sort of um, service industry stuff, which has been really disruptive. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this, well, that's where I have a personal interest because I'm a translator, so I sell translation services, but a lot of uh, people who I sell to are in the EU or the EEA. So the, the rules have changed, some of them. Um, the, the trade and cooperation agreement which was reached does mention translation and interpreting services to some extent so um, a group of us sort of scoured through for ideas of what we could see and understand that has changed but in fact it's not very clear um, the changes that have been made and it would be more difficult I think especially for interpreters who work in person and have to go to the place often to do interpreting different countries have different rules for um, what permits or requirements they have before you go and work. And it's certainly not the same as the freedom of movement that was within the EU. But there are other service industries who aren't mentioned at all um, and in the agreement. And it, again, it seems, unfortunately, everybody's in a slightly different position. Um, so everybody in their own industry is trying to, to find out the best way of moving forward what the rules are and whether they can challenge them if if necessary 
Yes, and interestingly, I'm not, I'm not sure if you saw this, but there was, I think Lord Frost was in the select committee hearing this week talking about the um, sort of damage done to musicians during this whole thing, which I guess, and he seemed quite, and he seemed quite sort of apathetic about the whole issue, which I guess brings us on to what can we do about this as citizens, as campaigners, and as people who do want to see our friends in the service industry continue to have access to this market, and our friends from the EU continue to have access to our markets. Well, that's one reason I think um, I was invited by some other colleagues to join this cross-border services group. And we're trying to just make connections between different groups who are all facing similar problems to try and see if um, together we've got a better chance of arguing our cases. Um, issues that are being faced, for example, um, by British nationals who live in the EU and used to be able to provide services no problem to to Switzerland people who live near Geneva airport for example taxi drivers who used to be able to drive sell their services they live in France they used to be able to sell services in Switzerland but now because of a slightly separate agreement which has been reached with Switzerland that seems problematic due to the drafting and that's something that um, if people's cases can be pulled together and the case could be put jointly it might be more successful in in um, getting changes made. Um, so that's that's one example of how maybe people working together can can succeed. Definitely, and best of luck with that. Katrina, did you have anything which you wanted to ask? Well, um, I suppose I'm quite interested. It would be nice if, to hear if you have any case histories um, whether it's a friend or mm. somebody you spoke to because I was just I just saw that that um, probably the most heartbreaking article I saw was the one about the um, the guy that posted on Twitter about his 83 year old mum I think it was, who yes. was dementia. yeah and I think it's just been published today actually in in a, a national publication I can't remember right. which one. and so it's getting I mean it's just it's just the sort of encapsulation encapsulates everything that's wrong with this scheme and the way it's being run but I just wondered if you had come across any um well yes I live in a, a small market town in Northumberland and um I was really pleased when I moved here about um 10 years ago that I already knew a translator who lived here and I think she's lived here about 30 years but she's originally from Germany so she's the experienced colleague who's been helping me out since I moved here but she's had to apply for the rights to stay here, even though she's been paying tax and contributing in the UK a lot longer than I have. Um, it, it, that's sad. And we also heard locally um, some of the town councillors who just been elected. One of them was originally born in Germany and had heard of uh, an elderly lady living on her own who hadn't yet applied for settled status. And there was a bit of a race against the clock to try and persuade her why she needed to apply and help her to apply, although she's um, an independent person, but we, we all um, in the local community were hoping that she would choose to apply so that she could keep these rights. Um, and we didn't really think that she was fully aware of, of what would happen if she didn't. That sounds quite similar to the story because, um, in fact, the guy said that it's it's absolutely heartbreaking because, because of his mother having dementia or Alzheimer's or whatever she has as well but he said actually if she didn't have that she probably would have refused to do it because mm. it's sort of a it just it feels like such um an affront doesn't it I mean 
you've been living working for paying taxes in the country for decades and then all of a sudden it, it's it's absolutely extraordinary really well i think if, if somebody had told you that this was what's going to happen maybe even five or six years ago you, you wouldn't have believed it um no. so you can see why people um might not fully realize what what the implications are well you definitely wouldn't have believed it because it was actually part of the vote leave campaign was to to categorically promise that nothing like this would change and even i think a year ago it was still oh it still won't happen i mean it's really even though there was i believe this deadline was imposed in 2019 but there wasn't very much publicity about it it's only really i think been since brexit actually kicked in this year that um, people have been scrambling. So what can people do now if they have missed the deadline? Because I, I've seen estimates that it could be tens, if not hundreds of thousands of them that have missed it. I think the official pos government position seems to be that they will look leniently on late applications, especially if there is a valid reason for them. Um, do you know what the valid reasons are? Because I was trying to actually research what the criteria was. I mean, you know, is ignorance an excuse in this case? I think it probably should be from the point of view that um, if the government was going to make changes, it's up to them to communicate it to, to people who need them. Um, the, the local EU citizens who I mentioned, uh, who set up a, a group among themselves, they tried to reach out and successfully got together a group of EU citizens um, who previously didn't know each other by um, looking in the electoral register for people who were registered to vote in local elections, but not national elections. Um, yeah. And also, I think some people presumably weren't registered to vote at all. But once they got that core group, I think other people knew other people. So they did successfully research it and um, got, got together to, to discuss with each other, which has probably s stood them in good stead um, on that basis. So it's not like the government couldn't have done similar research to try and reach out to people. I haven't heard that they have done something like that. No, they don't seem to have been uh, proactive in that way at all. And and it, I was interested hearing you speak about the lack of um, actual physical evidence that you actually need. And I was I initially assumed that it would be something like the way you can look up a car registration and see if it's been taxed and MOT'd and that kind of an insured and that you could just look up your details somewhere and it would be quite easy or or it would be linked to your passport so it would make sense you know that you've got some kind of uh, you know the equivalent of a stamp but it isn't even that it I understand that it's like some really complex system where you have to go to a website then another one and get a code sent mm. and so if you happen to be in an area which doesn't have great internet or it goes down for some reason it's also a big faff. So the landlord's got a choice of two people and one of them involves him having to enter like however many codes and, and yeah. the, I mean, you, you can see what's barrier. going to happen. Yeah, it's a real barrier. I mean, just, just as if there are two candidates for a job and one is from the UK, so you have to get them a visa before you employ them for a job in the EU now. Um, and one is from the another EU country, so they can just start tomorrow I think you would probably choose the one you didn't need to apply for a visa for um, and similarly yes if if there's hurdles that some people have to get over before they can get accommodation or a job 
that that makes it more difficult for them to get it right yeah yes, and, and i've heard of, of information disappearing too i just read an article today by somebody who has said he had he'd applied in time um a couple of months ago and had previously had his former status there i believe there was another settled status and even then you had to reapply for this new one but that information has since been wiped and now all he's got is this sort of a certificate of application online which doesn't really tell you anything other than they are agreeing that you've applied but no evidence that he's been settled for many years so it's very very scary for people i think it is i mean a lot of people also come from countries where they're used to carrying a physical um id card as well as um, as proof of their identity. So they may be um, more amenable to having physical proof um, th than the average person in the UK, because I know in the UK, we've traditionally been wary of having um, any national form of ID. But we also have to be realistic that not all IT systems are up all the time. You know, it's the internet goes down sometimes. And if if that happens, it's it doesn't seem fair to not be able to prove um, your identity, your right to enter the country. No, quite. Well, it seems like we have quite a road ahead for all these people, poor e-citizens with settled status, and we'll keep on watching the story. But thank you so much for speaking with us today, Kim. You have a nice day. Cheers. Thank you so much to Kim for speaking with us this week. So the undercovered story of the week that I've selected for this week is from the US, uh, where they've been having a very busy news week of their own. Um, extreme temperatures, Cosby released, Britney's prison, but none of those is what I've picked. I've actually picked that the US Supreme Court on Thursday, July 2nd, actually gave states more leeway to voting. So they've actually voted... Unfortunately, Trump's picks for the Supreme Court, very, very conservative, far-right picks, are now making decisions like this. And they have actually voted six to three, the conservative justice, to make the voting restrictions easier for states to apply. And these are Republican red states. And the, the three liberals dissented. But uh, so that's interesting. Yes, as far as I can tell from looking at the story, it's mostly around what they call Article 2, which is of the Original Voting Rights Act, which kind of says that you can't place an undue burden on people going to vote um, based on kind of skin colour and in that sort of discriminatory way. Um, and so this kind of very textualist reading of the law itself seems to be based around the idea that it's not discriminatory to impose these restrictions, even though they affect predominantly voters of colour, because it's not sort of written in that sense, as far as I could tell. Yes. Um, well, there's a couple of issues. Um, there was also a, a 2016 Arizona law that made it a crime to provide another person's completed early ballot to election officials, um, with the exception of family members or caregivers. Um, and community activists sometimes engage in ballot collection to facilitate voting and increase voter turnout, especially because there's a another problem, which is about placing, you know, 
often, and especially again in Republican states, you'll often find that the only places to vote are way out of town, that if you don't actually own mm. a car, you can't get to them, that kind of thing. So it's legal in most states with some limitations. A Republican critics call it ballot harvesting, you know? So I believe that they're going to be, that's probably going to be easier to get rid of. And, um, but yes, it is. It's another, basically, there's not much left of the original um, Voting Rights Act. And that's mm. the problem. It's sort of, it's been chipped away at. Yes. And obviously, there are currently efforts in the Senate now to try to pass some kind of version of the For the People Act to actually try to get some sort of strength in democracy. But it doesn't seem like that's going to work either. So there's definitely sort of dark days ahead for the US. Yes, especially as, um, you know, the the Republicans continue to um, put forward the big Trump lie about that he'd won the election mm. and that there was voter fraud and all the rest of it. And they're continuing to play that out and pretend that there wasn't an insurrection, all this stuff. And I, I can read what, what Biden said. It sort of sums it up quite nicely. Um, it says various states have enacted sweeping Republican back voting restrictions in the wake of former President Donald Trump's false claims of widespread election fraud in his 2020 loss to now President Joe Biden. And Biden said about the ruling, while this broad assault against voting rights is sadly not unprecedented, it is taking on new forms. It's no longer just about a fight over who gets to vote and making it easier for eligible voters to vote. It is about who gets to count the vote and whether your vote counts at all. And I think that is one of the issues is because um, so the Arizona ruling makes it harder to prove violations of the Voting Rights Act. Rights Act. And yeah, it's basically just shoring up all the ways that Republicans are crying foul even when there's nothing to cry foul about. And it's getting rid of protections that in enabled more people to vote, people of colour and from, you know, underprivileged backgrounds and so on. So, And then the story which I wanted to have a look at this week is the fact that, unbeknownst to many people, Angela Merkel actually made her final trip to Britain this week. Um, so she visited us, I believe it was on um, Thursday, wasn't it? Was it? <laughs> it was a really busy week. I mean, was that yeah. the... Is that Batley and Spen as well? I think about on Friday then. Yeah, it was Friday. Yeah, yesterday. Um, but so the context of this is that the UK and Germany have just signed a big foreign policy and defence policy cooperation agreement, kind of ensuring this kind of bilateral annual summit between foreign ministers of the UK and Germany. Um, it seems to be a kind of big reconfiguration of foreign relations post-Brexit. So the UK is hoping to sign similar agreements with France and Italy as well. There are two quite interesting angles here about the Merkel trip. The first is this one, so it's kind of bilateralism in foreign policy. So generally speaking, up until now, foreign policy has been quite what you call multilateral. So meeting in big institutions of lots of different nations, like the UN, like the EU. And so it's kind of lots of countries cooperating on a basis of kind of communal agreement. But particularly since 2016, particularly since the election of Donald Trump, lots of big powers like the US, like the UK, and actually like places like France as well, have been pushing for a more kind of bilateral restructuring of foreign relations, where it's more about agreements in between individual states. And it seems like post-Brexit, the UK is really trying to push this, which kind of makes sense since we're now sort of on our own in this sense, and to try to get this series of bilateral agreements with EU leaders. And of course, the other 
more interesting angle of this to lots of people will be the fact this is sort of the EU and Germany trying to make up essentially post-Brexit. So Jeremy Cliff this week, this week wrote in the New Statesman about how much damage has been done in the Anglo-German relationship over the years. Lots of kind of attacks against particularly figures like Merkel from the British press and encouraged almost by British political leaders. And this sort of attempt to reconcile to get a more grown-up relationship given how many serious foreign policy challenges are going to be facing both countries in the next couple of years with both Russia and China on the horizon. Right. I mean, I, I did see uh, she she was very, as usual, uh, very diplomatic. And and uh, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was quite, quite right. I mean, I'm finding the quote now. Yeah, it's... But yeah, go on. Yeah. So she was asked to sort of sum up how she felt about Boris Johnson. And she said, we look at each other, we look at how different people can be and we make the best of it, which kind of truly sums up both how different Merkel and Boris are and the way in which they're different. Um, Angela Merkel has been a sort of tactful, quiet, sensitive leader, whereas I think that even his biggest fans wouldn't say that Boris Johnson was like that at all. Thank you so much to Kim Sanderson for speaking with us this week and be sure to check out her article in Northeast Byland. This week's editor was Jules Greenman. Be sure to check us out at Bylines Pod on all social media. And as always, the music is Vauxhall Revolution by Kevin McLeod. Thanks, Kevin.